Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day that you have made and set aside for worship and coming together as your people and opening your word and learning more about it and how we all fit into this great story of redemption. We pray, Lord, that you would show us Jesus and show us how we are to live in light of what he has done for us, even in the Old Testament. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. So this week we're looking at uh, the pictures of Jesus in the Mosaic Covenant. And we'll get to talk about that a little bit, what that actually is. Uh, But just to start off, I think that there's so many beautiful things about seeing Christ from this vantage point. That the Old Testament, in many ways, is showing us so many pictures of Christ and allows us to see another angle, another glimpse of what Christ actually has done for us. And it really opens up the whole New Testament for us in understanding a lot of these different pictures or symbols of what Christ came to do. And really, it's just a call for us to worship God. That God is, as we're going to see with Israel, He's he's redeeming us for the specific purpose of worshiping Him. And in many ways, I think that's like, that is the essence of what it means to be human. That that is what it means to be human, is to let go of control, to let go of trying to manipulate everything around us and be left in awe of God and and worship Him. Uh, This is really what letting God be God is about, that we're letting go of control and letting go of our fears. And this oftentimes, it it, it makes us actually interpret the Bible wrongly when fear is really what's driving us. We ask, what can I do? What can I do to be in control? What does God want me to do in this relationship? But the Bible is, as we've seen, is really all about Jesus. And it's about standing still and seeing the salvation that the Lord is is bringing us. It's about standing and watching what God is doing and worshiping God in, in, in light of that. And we begin to see that this is even how Jesus told his, his disciples how to read the Old Testament with him at the center. And in his ministry, he would, see, he would say all kinds of things about Moses writing of me, that Abraham looked to my day. And then even after Jesus rose from the dead, in Luke 24, we had this amazing scene where he's on the road to Emmaus and his heartbroken disciples are with him and they followed this Jesus and they followed and seen him crucified and they've heard reports about him being raised from the dead and they just don't believe it. And they just don't think it's true. But then they had this incredible scene where Jesus is coming to them and he begins with Moses and all the Old Testament and he shows them how all of these things are concerning himself, how all of these things are about what he has done and how it's necessary for him to redeem his people. And so no wonder their hearts burn within them as, the, as he opens the Scriptures to them and he shows them how the Old and the New Testament is all about him. It's all about Jesus. And we can understand the Bible in that way as well. And so when we come to the Old Testament, we see a lot of uh, details there. And we have to realize that all, none of these details are random. None of the things that we see in the Bible are just like, 
oh, well, I just thought that I put in the color of the sky this day and just for fun. No, every single detail is there for a specific purpose. And it's not meaningless. It all fits together within this greater purpose of what God is doing in Jesus and His mission to save us and save His people according to this one promise that we talked about the last couple of weeks in Genesis 3.15 where God is promising to send the seed of this woman, the offspring of Abraham, to save His people and to crush the serpent's head. Um, and this, this battle that we talked about last week keeps coming up throughout the whole Bible as we'll see in Exodus. That is this, really this confrontation between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. And we see that all the way into Egypt where we left off last week, we're in Exodus, where the people of Israel are held captive by this evil king, this evil pharaoh who rules over Egypt. Um... I don't know how many of you liked history when you were in elementary school or in, in high school and you remember the pictures of Egypt where they had all those cool mummy pictures and statues. And I, I was kind of a geek and I just kind of loved history and reading about all that kind of stuff. But if you remember ancient Egypt, they had all these pyramids. They had stone pictures of this pharaoh where he had a picture of the crown or the head covering that he had. How many of you remember what was on the top of that crown of Pharaoh? A serpent, exactly. So it's, in case we're missing it, it's, it's right there for us that ancient Israel would have seen Pharaoh as the seed of the serpent, this dragon from the beginning of Genesis, that he was their oppressor. And that's where we are left off, where Exodus, where the Hebrew people, the, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are slaves in, ex, in, in Egypt. And what we find is this whole time period centers around a guy named Moses. And that's why it's called the Mosaic Covenant. But Moses is sent by God in his ministry to redeem Israel and bring them up out of Egypt. And... But all of these things that we said earlier, all these things are pictures. They're great like previews, movie previews, and shadows of what Christ would come to do. But Moses is sent as his deliverer and sent to God's people who are in bondage. And he's this mediator who's hearing from God and saying, go out and do this and redeem and bring my people up out of Egypt so that they can worship. But we constantly are always seeing how inadequate he is as a deliverer. Um, he is an inadequate deliverer because he's a, he's a sinner. And at one point, he even offers himself to God when, his, when the people of Israel have disobeyed. And he says to take my life. But because he's not a sinless substitute, he can't even do that for his people. So what Moses shows us is that we learn in Exodus is is in many ways, Israel's story is our story. Um, the reason that we need to read these books is that it's showing us our own slavery. It's showing us our own enslavement to sin. And too often, we, we think that we're in charge of our lives, 
and that we maybe maybe sin occasionally, but Jesus is the one who says that anyone who sins is a slave to sin, right? Um, so here we are reading this, and we are also the children of Israel, and we're enslaved to this satanic pharaoh, the serpent. And he has us, and we can't save ourselves. We need a deliverer, and God has sent us a deliverer. The Hebrews start crying out for God to help them and to save them, and God responds. He's not silent to their afflictions, but He responds to them. And that's what we see here in this book of Exodus. God is listening and hearing after all these hundreds of years. Israel is crying out to God for redemption. They're under this evil Pharaoh who's enslaving them. And, and yet the thing is that as we read Exodus, as we read all these Old Testament passages, God's people are just as guilty of sin as the Egyptians are. That they are liable and they are, they are in the same boat as their slaveholders. And they deserve the same judgment that's coming down on their captors. And so God sends Moses as this mediator to a sinful people. God sends Moses and he's bringing down all of these different plagues. If you remember quickly the, the, the plagues that were brought up on Egypt, there were all kinds of things. There were fleas and frogs. The water turned to blood. And he's sending all these different plagues upon Egypt. And then comes this mammoth plague. This is the big plague. Uh, it's the death of the firstborn. And it's really important when we come to these passages and read this that the sense in which Israel themselves were vulnerable and how that this judgment came down on the firstborn even of people of Israel, even of God's people, that they weren't sinless and that the only way that they were actually going to escape judgment and be saved was through this important thing called the Passover. This is probably one of the biggest pictures that we see in the Old Testament, one of the biggest events that cover, that speaks to what Christ came to do, um, that Israel had to be covered by the blood of this innocent lamb, an innocent substitute. And this is, this is like the, the big picture of what God is doing. That God, in the book of Exodus, He's... He's duking it out against the gods of Egypt. He's, he's bringing all these plagues upon them, attacking each god in their pantheon, each god in their, in their whole system of worship, showing that like, he alone is God. Like You have that, that picture of, of the whole Nile River turning to blood. Their god of fertility, their god who kept everything going, it was like God was plunging a spear through the, the Nile River. And he, he was slaying this God. And God is this warrior king who's going out and fighting for his people. Um, but that's not the end. God is coming down in judgment, as we said, in, in the death of his firstborn children. And everyone can come under this judgment. Even the Israelites are, are, are being told that they are sinners and that if they don't have this sacrifice 
that the angel of death will take their firstborn as well. Um, but if they take that sacrifice and they paint the blood over the doorposts, then death will pass right over. Um, imagine for a minute what, what this would be like, this sacrifice. This sacrifice and this death would be like a neon sign for them saying that their sin brings about death. You know, I sometimes wonder if, that if you and I would not take sin so casually if we knew that tomorrow we had to go out and slit the throat of this animal. If we were just having to sacrifice and sacrifice and be covered in blood all the time and have to bring up animals to, to show our sinfulness, um, that we are unclean that Israel was unclean. And we, if we're going to interact with a holy God and be in His presence and His love, then some sacrifice has to happen. And you know, that's when I think in, when you look at things like the books like Leviticus or Numbers or Deuteronomy about all these clean and unclean laws, I think that's like really when we start to kind of check out when we're reading the Bible because it's just really gross. Like there's just like blood everywhere in the Old Testament. Um, but I think this was an enormous act of faith for Israel that on this day that God said that they need to go out and slit the throat of this animal and then brush the blood over the doorpost because He says, when I come down, you need to do this to experience salvation. If you could just imagine, like, like they're seeing all these plagues coming all around them, fire and brimstone and the sky turning black and frogs and blood. And the Egyptians are probably freaking out. They're probably sacrificing to their gods, hoping that they can control this and control God. And Moses comes and says, you got to do this and you got to sacrifice this one little lamb. And they're like, let me get this right. So you want, you think that the greatest power in the universe, the one who's created everything, that we're going to be saved from his wrath by the blood of a little lamb? Um, that just doesn't make any sense. That seems like that seems ridiculous. But what this required of Israel and of us is this radical reliance on God and what He has said in His Word. That He is the He's the one who's going to make the provision for us, and that God is a God of promise. Um, That we have to listen to His words and listen to those things and and radically rely on everything that He is saying that we should do. Um, And and, and also, so this this sacrifice was required by the Israelites, but it was also open to everyone. The Egyptians and all the people around them could do the same thing and God would pass right over. Uh, And... In many ways, this is just a picture of how we are saved today. That, you know, we hear God's Word and He says that you need to be covered by the blood of an unblemished lamb. And I think that the kind of response that we have is like, many people in our day think that's ridiculous. Uh, How can a lamb really deal with what I'm going through today? all the fears and anxieties and problems that I have today. 
Um, even if we believe that this lamb was the lamb of God that John the Baptist talked about, Jesus, who takes away the sin of the world, he was, pa- he was slaughtered on Passover day, what they celebrated so many years later. Even if we believe that that happened, how could that have any power to affect my life so many years later um, to come under that blood, under his doorpost, and be saved from the angel of death? Uh, but, but that is what God is actually calling us to believe. And he, he even proved that by raising Christ from the dead. That he sent that offspring, he sent the seed of the woman so that death would pass over us. And so I think that's like one of the wonderful things about reading about all these stories as we slow down and we begin to see how all these things kind of fit together that we can actually see that this is our story about us. That we begin to see our, our sin and, and shame and guilt on full display. And we see our stupidity and evil right before our eyes and and God constantly is relentless in his love and coming for us and conquering our pharaohs and our satanic captors so in the story of exodus we really do see a story about slaves about us and that the only way that we could have that covering that passing over is of an innocent substitute is coming for us and redeeming us and after this, this happens, Israel is redeemed up out of Israel and he brings them out with a mighty arm and he brings them to the Red Sea and we hear this amazing Savior tell us, he says, stand, and see, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. And they go through the Red Sea and in some sense they're baptized by that and we as well come out the other side living this life that God has in in what seems like a wilderness as we are waiting to enter into that ultimate promised land. And so why we need to read this story? It's because it's our story and it shows from this different angle what what God is doing to save his people. Uh, That this all really happened and God is just preparing the way for the greater Moses, preparing a way for the greater mediator, and so God, God brings his people to Mount Sinai and he brings them out, out of the land of Egypt for specifically this reason to worship God. And he rescues them from evil and bondage so they can worship and adore him. And Israel becomes this special people with a unique covenant that God is going to form at, at this mountain in the wilderness at Mount Sinai. And we call it the, the Mosaic Covenant because, like we said before, that it has Moses as its mediator. So what, so what is this covenant? What is this Mosaic Covenant? And, and how is it unique or distinct from, from the one we talked about last week with Abraham in Genesis 15? Um, how is this distinct? Well, in many ways, there are lots of different things that we see of how this is such a different covenant than what was made with Abraham. So what does the Bible teach? Uh, First, I think that the word 
covenant we see all throughout the Bible as, as we said, as a specific relationship. That there are two parties involved, as we discussed last week, and the, the, the type of covenant it actually is, is seen in the ceremony that is going on. It's the kind of covenant is seen in the details. So we said a covenant is a relationship. And the kind of relationship is seen in the details. So the Mosaic Covenant is, is a very distinct thing that God is making on this mountain of Mount Sinai. With, it, with the people of Israel. And now first, I think it's interesting to say like that, why a mountain? Like why is it important that God is making this covenant and He's bringing this to this mountain? Well, in the ancient world, they kind of had this idea that God and man would have this meeting place and they often would see it in these high places, in mountains, where, where God would meet man halfway in some sense. And so God calls Moses up this mountain to meet with him and to establish this unique relationship with the people of Israel. Um, so this, this is a different covenant that God is making. If we read in Deuteronomy 5 that Moses says that the Lord our God has made this covenant with us in Sinai. Not with our fathers did He make this covenant, but with us and all who are alive today. So he's making this covenant and he's saying specifically that it's distinct from the one that, that was made with the fathers. Meaning Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So the fathers, what they call the patriarchs. So those three great founders of people of God, Israel. Um, there's this covenant that the patriarchs are not a part of. And the, the, we said that last week that the Abrahamic covenant was the beginning or the continuation of the covenant of grace. Uh, the patriarchs were a part of the specific covenant. Do you remember last week what we said was unique about what happened with Abraham? Um, what did God do to Abraham when he made that special ceremony? He put Abraham to sleep, didn't he? And he... Puts him, he knocks him out, and Abraham is left just watching God act. And God makes, we said, a unilateral or unconditional covenant. And so that's why we, what we say is grace. That's why we say it's all of God's favor. God was the one who was going to do this. And that is be very different from what we see with, with Moses, with this Mosaic covenant. That whenever Israel calls out to God for mercy that, or for deliverance, they're calling out to God and say, remember your promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And they never base it on the Mosaic Covenant. And so they differ in very specific ways. Um, in Deuteronomy 4, God says that, tells Israel that if they break the covenant, He will send them into exile. We, don't, we never saw that with Abraham's promises. God doesn't threaten that if Abraham does X, Y, or Z, He will send them out. But we see that with, with what's going on in, with this covenant with Moses. 
So God redeems Israel out of the land of Egypt and He brings them to Himself and He's making this special, as we said, this special covenant with the people of Israel. But this one is based on obedience in many ways. That, yes, they were saved by faith in the same way that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were. Saved in the same exact way as we are saved. But this specific covenant that he's making is conditional. That it is very different than the covenant he made with Abraham. Which was, as we said, was unilateral. It was unconditional. And it wasn't dependent on Abraham's obedience. So God makes this special covenant with Israel and they had to keep these terms that he, that he was about to make. If the terms were violated or broken, then they would have to have some way to have a new covenant or something to replace it or renew it. And God is very clear that the blessings that He promises are based on their obedience. Um, we see that in Exodus 19 that there, Israel is encamping around the, the Mount Sinai where God is giving the law, the Ten Commandments, and they receive God's Word. And it, we read in verses 3 and six, three, three, 3 through 6 of Exodus 19 that this is what you're going to say to the house of Jacob. You tell the people of Israel that you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you out on eagles' wings and brought you to Myself. Now therefore, if you indeed obey my voice and you keep my covenant, that you will be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you will be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you will speak to the people of Israel. So God is telling Moses this, and he's saying that this is a specific new covenant that he's making that didn't exist before. That God will be over these people of Israel and he would have a special relationship with them if they keep their side of the covenant. And you see this in very specific ways that God's promise is conditioned on Israel's performance. These aren't just like guidelines that if they, they wanted to obey, if they felt like it... Um, and as we saw last week with the Abrahamic covenant, what did God do to, to show what kind of ceremony He made? Um, if you remember last week, He had this huge thing where He was tearing apart all these animals and He was going through by this fiery pot and this kind of thing that signified His presence. Uh, very similarly, God has this interesting ceremony that He produces with Israel that he has this altar made and all the people of God are gathered around and there's these sacrifices that are made even here at Mount Sinai and he starts taking the blood and doing really interesting things. Like he starts symbolically throwing it on the altar and throwing it on the people of God. And so there's this very weird thing that's happening that you don't see what happened with Abraham. God Himself is going through the halves of the animals and He's saying, I'm going to take this upon Myself. I'm going to be the one who does this. But here, half of the blood is being starting to be sprinkled on God and then half of the blood is being sprinkled on the people of Israel. 
And so they make this covenant, and this ceremony shows what kind of relationship it is. It's showing what kind of things going on. And, and then, then after that, there's this remarkable thing where God calls up all the elders of Israel and he feasts with them. And he has this great feast to show that the covenant has been made. Um, and all of these things are showing all of all the things that we have to do in some ways to be in the presence of a holy God. That what is required, all these sacrifices, all these different things are showing what's required to be in God's presence. And I think that that's, that's important as we think about later on the dietary laws and the ceremonial laws. That these, this kind of covenant shows what the cost of is living with a holy God. And these things all point to our guilt and shame and corruption. But then they also show the greatness of God's redeeming love. So Israel is taken into this relationship. He's, uh, Moses is set up as the mediator between them and he's giving them all these rules, these different things that he's showing, all these ceremonial laws about what to eat and what not to eat and how to be clean and how to be unclean because all those things are pointing to the fact that we're as sinners, there are things that we have to do in order to be clean before God. And all these, pic- these things were pictures and shadows of what was necessary for us to be in God's presence once again. Um, and then we see the, the big command that comes along that God is saying you, you have to go into the promised land and totally wipe out the Canaanites from the promised land. And anything that's going to be unholy in this land has to go. God, If God is going to dwell with His people, if God is going to be in their midst, Israel has to do what Adam should have done. Just as Adam was confronted by the serpent in the garden and he was supposed to guard it and keep it and kick out anything that was unholy, Israel is now being called to do that same kind of thing. Um... And if they kept it, a lot of wonderful, remarkable things would happen to Israel. We read that uh, all these things that the curse brought onto the world would slowly be lifted. That there would be no disease or barren women that for, or cattle. And the cattle would be fruitful. The land would be full of every good thing. That he would send rain. That there would be no poor or needy among them. That they would have no enemies and they would have rest. I thought they would have no problem with their banking or finances. He says that they wouldn't have to borrow from other nations and said that they would actually be the bank of the world in some sense. And so they'd be rich and free. They would have no predators that would harm their flock and have large families and flocks if they did this and they, and they stayed in God's arms. And in many ways, all of these things are picturing, as we talk about, talked about last week, the new heavens and earth, that what God wanted for us, they were showing us these blessings of what God destined us for and what He made us for, that God just like constantly wants to bring us to that, that reality of living in His presence. Um, God 
wants us to be with Him. And He's going to all these lengths to bring us to Himself. But God is holy and no unclean thing can enter into that holy place. So in glory, we, we see, we hear echoes that there will be no disease or poverty or adversaries and we will lack no good thing. That we will live in God's intimate presence forever. As it says, in a land flowing with milk and honey. Um, so Israel in the special relationship was a picture of the glory that God wants for us. The wonderful relationship that we have with God and how we were made to live. We weren't made to have this curse upon us. We weren't made to have all the problems that we read about in Genesis 3 that came upon us because of sin. Um, and one of the interesting things I think though that is that this Mosaic Covenant is constantly showing us as I said before, I think the main thing it's showing us is what it means to dwell in God's presence, to dwell in a holy land. And in this specific covenant, it was according to law. It was a picture of all the conditions that were necessary that we can summarize in saying, do this and you will live. That's a, that's a great way to summarize you can see this is a law covenant because it says, do this and you will live. Living in the land was dependent on that very thing, obeying the Lord. And if they disobeyed, that they would be exiled, just like Adam and Eve were, that they would be exiled and kicked out and brought under a curse. And I think that's, it's, that's really important for a couple of different reasons, but whenever we just open up the book of the Bible, whatever ever, ever we are, I think it's important to say, okay, wh- let's look, look at the passage. What covenant, what specific thing is going on here? In order to see how it applies to me, is this, is this a conditional covenant that was made with Israel that was unique to them? Or is this something that's a part of the promises to Abraham? And so understanding, like, understanding that, that those Two different covenants is helpful when we open the Bible because something that's said to Israel is not going to apply to me in the same exact way as what was applied to Abraham. What is required in this covenant, in the Mosaic covenant, to stay in the land and the blessings that they're given aren't going to apply to me because I am not in that covenant. That covenant was conditional and Israel broke it even though God kept his end of the bargain. So I think that's just important as we think about um, the Mosaic laws. That God is constantly jealous for His people. He wants to be with His people. He wants to be in His presence. And He's constantly doing things, showing, echoing back to the creation, saying, like, I want to be with you in this intimate relationship. But now as, as sinners, there are things that have to happen in order to be in my presence. So God's, God's holy presence is, is in many ways really problematic for sinners. Um, and, but the Old Testament, the, the, that old covenant, we see in the book of Leviticus that God is actually making provision for that. God is saying, okay, you, we know you're sinful. I know you're sinful people. Um, and, you, and, and I want you to be in this special relationship. So here are all these sacrifices here are all these things, kind of like the Passover that we talked about, 
that are necessary to stay in this land because you are going to mess up. You are going to sin. And so the book of Leviticus in many ways answers this problem. And I don't know about you, but uh, when you can read these laws, it can be very confusing. Um, I don't know many people who just enjoy reading the book of Leviticus or Numbers and just kind of going through and like, oh yeah, let's, let's read about this law and how I can't eat shellfish. And do I have to go out and kill all the Canaanites and the termites and the, you know, like all these different unpronounceable things. Um, but reading it in this sweeping story, it helps to make sense of those things and why God has given them. Uh, I remember growing up in my world, I don't know if you've heard of this, but hearing that these laws, these dietary laws and ceremonial laws were given for their health. You know, they were given for sanitation reasons and health reasons. And that's why God gave them. They're really practical, you know. Um, but in many ways, they're not random. They're not health laws they, they were, that just were helping them out, although it, it did in some ways. But that's not why God gave the book of Leviticus or all these different laws under this, this specific covenant, under, under, under Moses. What became clear, I think, to me, just reading and considering and, and understanding in this big story is that all of these things are reflecting uncleanness and lack of holiness. Like what we talked about in Genesis 3. Everything is declaring to us what the world looks like that was impacted by the curse. That childbirth becomes painful and bloody and there's mildew and deterioration and we feel like work is pointless so many days and we just look for purpose and meaning in all the wrong places. This is all part of the post-curse world. So all these laws tell me that the world's unclean and that God is actually declaring something and He's saying that I'm not going to allow the curse to remain forever. It's not going to hold sway over the world forever. I'm coming in and taking care of this. Just like I conquered all those gods in Egypt, I'm going to cleanse the world and make it holy. And he's demonstrating this and he's saying, you know, there, I'm saying that this is unclean and this is unclean, but I'm making a provision to make you clean. I'm giving you a sacrifice so that you can be clean. And since we only have oh, man, a brief amount of time, I, I think one of the biggest sacrifices after the Passover is the Day of Atonement. Like the Passover and the Day of Atonement were the two biggest, you could say, mountain peaks that were for Israel that signify what God was doing to be with His people. And we find that in Leviticus 16 and 17 that on this day, the high priest, the person who was to make these sacrifices before God, would enter into the most holy place, the inner sanctum, the Holy of Holies, for the nation of Israel so that their sins would be wiped away. The slate would be clean. And there were two goats specifically that signified that. I don't know if you remember your Old Testament history, but do you know what the two goats were? There were two specific goats. They had one that was a sacrifice and substitute, and then one was a, called a scapegoat. So these things, these two very important things highlight what God is doing. So you had the sacrifice and scapegoat. 
spelled that right. Yeah, okay. Uh, the first goat was a substitute for sinners that our lives are forfeit. Saying our lives deserve the death penalty because of our sin. And so this one, this sacrifice, the first sacrifice, the substitute, would atone or turn away God's wrath for our sin, the guilt that we deserved. And the second one was it's called a scapegoat. And, and we have that in our common day, everyday use. We talk about people, someone's a scapegoat. They're taking something to blame for somebody else and so you can go free. And in many ways, that's what this was representing. The, the priests would come and lay their hands on the second goat, showing that their sin, the sin of the people, would be transferred to the scapegoat. It would be credited to it or, or given over to it. And then the goat would be sent away into the wilderness to take away sin from God's presence. So first, the slaughtered goat would be diverting God's wrath from, his, from people from God's people and turning it aside. Uh, this is a very important New Testament word called propitiation that I think is really, really important. It's one of those good theological words that... I spelled that right. Yeah, propitiation. And this meant that by removing the guilt that God's wrath would be turned away. And then the scapegoat that purity and holiness before God would come when that shame and corruption would be sent out into the wilderness to die. And that is called, another good word, expiation. So one is turning away God's wrath, and the second one is removing it from His presence. And God is showing what was necessary by His grace for sinful Israel to be in His presence. And you know, I think this is like a really marvelous picture and a sense of what God is doing for us. That He's not going to allow the world to remain under the curse of Genesis 3. He's not going to allow our corruption to be forever, but He's going to make us clean. And how He does that is through an all-sufficient sacrifice in Christ, who is the ultimate day of atonement for us. He's the one who does this perfectly in a way that all those sheep and goats could never do. These repeated sacrifices and goats could never really take away people's sin. And that's why they had to do them over and over and over again. God was just waiting for the day when the Lamb of God would come and take away the sins of the world. And He would finally bring us into heaven. And He would finally make us clean the second Adam. And so this is what God's way of going to make the world clean, and He's going to do that by becoming unclean for us. He's going to touch the woman with leprosy, who is like the picture of death and corruption in the ancient world. And He's going to become unclean, and He's going to touch the dead body and raise it from the dead. And He's the one who actually, He takes our murder he takes our lusts. He takes our prostitution and our addiction. And He takes our abortion. And He takes our shame and guilt. And He becomes that by hanging on the cross, which was the ultimate shame and sign of being cursed. That was the ultimate curse, was hanging on the tree showing God's disfavor. 
And so God in Christ does this by becoming a curse for us. He's going to make the world clean. He's going to make the world acceptable before God. He's not only going to do that though, He's also going to make us holy. You know, He's going to cleanse the world, but He's also going to sanctify us so that we will actually be holy to the Lord. That's, like the, that's the promise coming out of this Mosaic covenant is that God is saying all these things you have to do, they're never going to work. They're never going to actually get the job done because I'm going to be the one who has to do it. That's what's going to actually make you holy to the Lord. And you know, I think that that's what we find so unbelievable at times. Um, like we say, Lord, look at my sins. Look at all the things that I've done. Like I Look at my prostitution and my lust and my death and the murder that I've committed. And, and you know, the Lord does look at us and he, and he is like, and he really says, what sin? You know, he says, what abortion? What murder? Um, it's like, you are holy to the Lord. You're not just uh, no longer unclean, but you're holy. And, and he doesn't see our sin and there, he doesn't see our curse anymore. And that's going to be the reality of our lives. That the cleanness that he's beginning as we experience the new creation, even now, I think that just like this, this, this is why the Old Testament is so awesome is because it just highlights so wondrously all the things that Christ has done. And it's just like, bam, he, he touches this leper. He touches this unclean person. He touches me and you. And he takes that and he says, you're holy to the Lord. You're not just neutral. You're not just clean, but you're holy. And He's starting that work cleaning away our old dirty habits and old ways of thinking and feeling about ourselves. He's at this work even now making all things clean. So that even though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. And one day we will hear this voice coming out of heaven saying, Behold, I make all things new. And we're going to be able to dwell in that place where righteousness is. And so that this is in many ways, like this whole vision of reality is what is the backdrop to the New Testament. Um, understanding what Moses is and what he's done and just quickly what these sacrifices were about highlight and just make electric what Christ has done in the New Testament. You know, just in closing, um, I think some of the things that's shocking about reading the, like the Old Testament is that it's full of liars and rapists and murderers and, and just horrible, horrible people. It's full of unclean, unholy people. Um, but that's the people that God is, is redeeming and making clean and holy. And that's what is, seems like is so unbelievable. But Christ is bringing that reality about and He's coming. So next week we'll quickly go through the life of Christ and how he's bringing about this new covenant because the Mosaic covenant failed and the people of Israel couldn't keep it and how he became these things for us. Um, I guess we are running, running out of time, but any questions or thoughts before we end? Comments? Anything that struck you?
right, well, thank you all for coming. Let's end with a word of prayer and we'll go worship. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for this day that you've made and allowed us to quickly look through the old covenant and how this covenant you made with Israel um, and how you go so out of your way to be with us even though we're sinful and you've taken all our sin and shame and guilt upon Christ and we see that even in the Old Testament um, and how we are these sinners that we see in the Old Testament and yet you loved us all the same and you take away our sin and say what sin and so we praise you, Lord, and we ask that you prepare our hearts now for worship and in whose name we ask. Amen.